Well, welcome back to the year of the good news at New Freedom Church. Can you just put your hands together for the spirit of the Lord we felt in this place during our worship time? An announcement of good news. You know, in a day and age when news that is good does not sell, but only the bad news get the clicks and gets the attention, I believe that God has given us the best news. It is the gospel of Jesus. It is the announcement that we can have eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. That is the good news. We have been tracking along in the book of Mark, watching the action gospel as it plays out. And today I want to get into Mark chapter 8 before we uh, segue into another part of our service today. At the very end, we're going to have baptism service and celebrate baptism and uh, all that, that that means to the individual, but also to the body, to the body of Christ and to the church. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 8. I want to take a couple of sections here of this passage and and, uh, maybe reference something that we saw earlier. The first 10 verses is another miracle account of the feeding of a large multitude. You see that in chapters uh, 5 and 6, we see lots of miracles taking place. And we already uh, witnessed the miracle of Jesus feeding 5,000, the Bible says, men, not including women and children. So it could have been upwards of 15,000 people were fed by a little boy's lunch, just a couple fish and some loaves. This is how that Jesus took something and made a, an entire meal and provision for a people who were in need and hungry. And we see again in these first 10 verses, I won't read the, the entirety of the, these verses, but there is a feeding again of 4,000, another miraculous provision by the hands of Jesus. And if you're in the place of life, if you're in a, a time and maybe a season of life where the provision just seems to look impossible, where it seems to be a question, how am I going to make it through? Then you can read this with encouragement to know that God understands and God cares about your needs. Somebody say, God cares about my needs. And he'll take care of our needs. The question that occurs to me when I read this uh, second account of the feeding of these 4,000 is that both accounts share some things in common, and that is that there was not enough provision in the natural to provide for a natural meal. There was something that had to be activated in the spiritual for the natural to be affected by what we couldn't see so that they could be fed by what they could tangibly feel. And here's the question that I have for all of us today. Are we willing to step out in faith and begin when it doesn't seem to be enough? Are we willing to trust God with little and watch and wait and see him to make it more than enough? Or are we just going to wait until all the circumstances align perfectly? Are we going to wait until we step out in faith when it seems like all of the provisions are already in place? Are we going to wait until the big thing happens? Or are we going to trust God in the little things? The scripture tells us that when you're faithful over few things, you will be made ruler over much. And here's the problem that so many people get in, 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 involved in in their spiritual life is that they're waiting on God to move. They're waiting on God to make the miracle happen. They're waiting on God to do something. When Jesus said to his disciples, how much provision do you have? It doesn't look like enough. In fact, it's not enough right now, but what do you have? 
He also asked Moses the same question. What's in your hand, Moses? Moses said, I, I can't do anything. I, I stutter. I, I have an impediment of speech. And God said, I didn't ask you to detail for me all of your inadequacies. What I ask you is, what do you have? What is in your hand? Because what is in your hand is enough for God to do what you can't see, exceeding abundantly more than you can even ask or imagine. So this feeding of the 4,000 shows us that we need to get in the posture and in a position of trusting God when it doesn't seem to be enough. Because I'll share with you this, most of the time, whenever God has moved in my life, most of the time when God has swept through this congregation, has moved upon our church, it has been in those moments when it looked bleak, when it looked like things were not going to work out, when it looked like there was not going to be an answer, that is when God comes in with a brush of his spirit and moves in mighty ways. And you know why God does that? I believe that God does that so that when we look back at the track record, the established pattern of God's faithfulness in our lives, we can stand on this side of the victory and we can look back and say, look what the Lord has done. It's not by might, it's not by power, but it was by God's spirit, thus saith the Lord. I couldn't have done it. I couldn't have worked it out any better than the way God worked it out. And if you're like me, you look back on some of those moments of having to trust God and, and rely on him for provision, and there are some seasons of life that you have come through and you're victorious today. And I look back on many seasons of my life that in the moment it felt like I was going under. And had it not been for the Lord who was on my side, I would have been swallowed up. And I look back on those moments and I say, God, I am so grateful for having had that opportunity, but I would never, ever, ever ask for it again in my life. Amen. We don't ask for those things, but they visit us. And so Jesus has the same method here with the feeding of the 4,000 is that he blessed it and then he broke it and his disciples distributed it. He blessed it and then he broke it, but Jesus never passed out any of the meal. It was up to his apprentices. It was up to his disciples. And what are you and I as disciples of Jesus? We are apprenticing our master. And so when our lives are blessed, we can look forward and say, thank you, God, for the blessing in my life. But we have to acknowledge and we have to understand that with every blessing, there is coming a season of brokenness. And it's not a season of brokenness so that you get taken out or you go under. It's a season of brokenness so that your life and the light that's inside of you can be distributed to others. And Jesus doesn't go and distribute that that's why we are the hands and feet of Jesus to do the kingdom work in our world, shining light in a dark place. Let's not curse the darkness. Let's just go shine the light. Amen. Let's be what God has called us to be. So after they had taken up seven large baskets, this is different than the feeding of the 5,000. They only took up 12 baskets, as, as you know. But in this case, they took up seven very large baskets, more provision than they even needed. 
It says that they got into the boat and Jesus got in with his disciples and they went into the next town. It's interesting to me that we many times want to camp out in our season of victory, don't we? We want to camp out in our place of blessing. But Jesus said, listen, there's more work to do. I can't stay here. I'm getting in the boat and I'm going into the next town. It would have been very easy for Jesus and his disciples to just go ahead and build a a synagogue there and say, if you want to hear about Jesus' good works, just come on and you come to me. And this is the the message that the church has, has given for many years is the come and see, come and see what God's doing. Come and see, come, come to us, come to our church, come and see when the message of the gospel is not only a come and see, it's a go and be, go and be, go and be light, go and be salt, go and be a testimony, go and be a blessing, go and be that one to distribute what God has given. Jesus got into the boat with his disciples. They went over to the next city and this is what we see. Verse 11. Then the Pharisees, if you haven't seen this pattern yet, we're going to go here all year long because all four Gospels have these same characters, the the scribes, the Pharisees, the Herodians, the the Roman rulers, the, the governmental agency of the day. We see these people cropping in and out because they were the established rulers of the time. They were the ones that had the most to lose by a person like Jesus of Nazareth rising to prominence and fame. They were the ones who had established tight controls upon culture and society. And nobody likes change, and especially a despot and an authoritarian does not like change. And these people had feathered their nests so closely because they were the elite. They were in the know. They were the officials of the day. It says, then the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with Jesus seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. They were asking for a sign as a test, but he sighed deeply in his spirit. Can you just see Jesus? <sighs> Do we have to go there again? That's, that's basically the posture of Jesus. He sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. And he left them, and getting into the boat again, he departed to the other side. This is very fascinating, the way this plays out, because this generation sought after a sign. I mean, what more sign did they need? The blind could see, the deaf could hear, the lame could walk, the dead were raised again, healing signs, miracles and wonders were already happening They could have looked at those and they could have seen those signs, yet they're asking for another sign. There was something more that they wanted. And that's the ways of the world. The world will always want more evidence, want more facts, want more more corroboration. They always, always, always want more. It reminds me of of the the temptation in the wilderness where Jesus was tempted of the devil and and he had these, these three temptations. And what was the very temptation was to produce a sign, a wonder, some kind of a, a miracle, do some action, do some activity to prove who you really are. And that's not what Jesus needed to do at all. And these Pharisees were asking for a sign and it was a test. It was a, a way to trip him up. But Jesus was way too smart for that. Say, Jesus is too cool for school. Jesus was too smart for that. And he wouldn't give them a sign. If they couldn't already see blatantly what was happening, he wasn't going to give them a sign. It also uh, brings back to my memory that Jesus said that in another place, no sign will be given except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. What was the prophet Jonah? Three days in the belly of a fish, dead 
and spit out alive again. And Jesus, when he went into that tomb, he said, this is going to be a sign. You don't get it right now, but there will come a time. He died on the cross at Calvary and for three days dead in a tomb and was raised to life again. On the third day, he rose and he's alive forevermore. He said, that will be a sign to you, but they didn't understand that. They were hard of heart. It also brings back to my remembrance, this desire for a sign. Remember the the story of the rich man and Lazarus? There was a, a rich man and, and he had everything that he needed and Lazarus was a beggar. It's interesting that we don't even know the rich man's name in this story, but we know Lazarus' name, he was the beggar. And when they both died, it says the rich man went down to the bowels of hell, but Lazarus was carried into the bosom of Abraham. He was carried into the place of paradise. And the rich man from his torment cried out and said, don't allow my brothers to come to this place. Would you send Lazarus to go and warn them not to come to this place? And what was it told to him? It was said that if they don't believe the prophets and Moses, if they don't believe what already has been preached to them, then they'll not believe Lazarus either. In other words, a sign today is not enough to take you on in an experience with God tomorrow. You have to have an encounter with God for yourself. So Jesus didn't give him a sign. We don't need more proof that God exists. We just need to open our hearts to what God is already doing all around us. We want more proof. We want empirical evidence. We want something that can be placed under a microscope and tested and proven. But I cannot prove God that way. I can't prove God exists to you, but I can be and I have been convinced that God indeed does exist, that he is, and he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Are you seeking him today? Are you reaching out to catch something today that you have never had before? Are you seeking him today? Matthew 8 and 14 continues the, the narrative. It says, the disciples had forgotten to take bread. Now they're in the boat. Jesus got in the boat with them. They went to the other side again. The disciples had forgotten to take bread and they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. They just collected seven basketfuls of provision, of bread, of fish. And it says that when they got into the boat, they didn't take more than one loaf with them. I wouldn't want to be that disciple who was in charge of lunch that forgot to take even one of those basketfuls. I mean, there were seven of them there. It's okay to feed the poor. It's okay to give to the needy. Do that, but take yourself some provision too. It says they didn't take but only one loaf of bread. Then he charged them, verse 15, then he charged them saying, take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they reason amongst themselves saying, it's because we have no bread you know, that takes leaven to make bread rise. And so they only had a little bit of provision. They only had one loaf of bread. Jesus said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Verse 17, but Jesus being aware of it said to them, why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened having eyes? Do you not see having ears? Do you not hear? And do you not remember? Listen, I got to stop right there. They had all the right equipment to make a conclusion on the problem. They had ears, they had eyes, 
and they had memory. They had all the right equipment, all the right makeup to conclude that God was in fact faithful. And here's what Jesus is saying. You have everything that you need and yet you still are hard of understanding. I I can relate with the disciples because I'm a little bit slow to learn some of the spiritual principles of God in my own life. I feel at times that my own spiritual life is like a remedial class. Like I just have to take that one over again. I'm sorry, Lord, I didn't get it. Yes, I have ears to hear, but sometimes they don't listen. Yes, I have eyes to see, but sometimes I look through the natural lens and I'm not seeing what God is doing in the spiritual. Yes, I have a memory to recount all that God has done, but I am slow to remember when the fires of temptation and the trials of life are burning and raging in the moment. Can anybody else testify that, yeah, sometimes I'm slow of learning God's lessons in my life too? We shouldn't be so hard on the disciples, but Jesus was getting to a point with them. Verse 19, it says, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls fragments did you take up? And they said to him, 12. Also, when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said, seven. And he said to them, how is it you do not understand? Miracles and wonders, manifold provision had been given. They experienced it, they witnessed it for themselves, and yet they were still not understanding. Get this, while the miracle was digesting in their system, they were worried about the next provision. Their body hadn't even fully processed the first miracle and now they're already in doubt and unbelief about if God can ever do this again. Does that sound like us sometimes? We have all the right equipment. We have the memory. We have the track record. We've written it down. But do we ever go back to really understand, to really consult? And he said to them, how is it that you do not Understand. Verse 18, if I could just bring the Joe Schutz translation, it would be like this. What is wrong with you guys? That's what I would hear Jesus saying to me. What is wrong with you? Come on. You're better than that. I've invested in you. I have given to you all of these things for life and godliness, and yet you still worry. You still fret. You're still unsure. You're still timid about witnessing your faith. But let's look at what is leaven in the Bible. The Bible needs to interpret the Bible, okay? And so we know that in Bible terms, leaven is sin. And sin, according to the Greek translation of the word hemartia, is missing of the mark. So it's really to to put in our minds this this, uh, picture of an archer. As he has a target downrange, he pulls back the bow, and if his arrow hits the middle, it hits the target, then he has not hemartiaed, he has not sinned, he has not missed the mark. But if somehow he gets off of that target, he has missed the mark, therefore he has sinned. That is what sin is all about. We have missed the mark of being the image bearers, the reflectors of what God has called us to do. When we miss the mark in any way of our life, we sin. Somebody said, well, well, pastor, 
can I not sin? Is it possible for me not to sin? I, I have to sin every single day. There's this, this, this thought pattern that you have to sin every single day. And, and while I would say that most of us do miss the mark probably every single day, there are maybe are, are times of our sanctified lives where, where we really hit that mark. I would say you don't have to sin every single day, but most of us probably miss the mark every single day. But here's the question I would have for you. Can you go 30 seconds without sinning? Not a trick question. I think we probably can, right? (laughs) Then you can probably extend that to a minute without sinning. Then you can probably get to a place where you're a half hour without sinning or, or an hour without missing the mark. And so it's not about Christian perfection. We are only perfect in Christ, not in our own works of righteousness. But when we miss the mark, First John tells us that we have this blessed hope, this, this advocate with the Father, Jesus the righteous, that makes intercession for us, that when we sin, he makes intercession for us so that we have the restoration of relationship. But leaven in the Bible is always a reference to missing the mark or sin. And so he talks about the leaven of the Pharisees. The leaven of the Pharisees was that they had entered into doubt and unbelief. They had missed the mark. They had missed their opportunity, their day of visitation. Now the leaven of Herod is something a little different. If you go back and you study first century uh, uh, world history, then you'll see that Herod was a power monger. Herod was a a kingly, uh, control, uh, authoritarian government official that had this claim and grasp on power. And Herod's sin of leaven, the leaven of Herod, is that he had such a thirst for power that he wanted to control all outcomes. You know, we're dealing in our world today with a modern day Herod, and it's Vladimir Putin. There is such a thirst for power, but not just power. Vladimir Putin is not the first Vladimir of Russia that has ever risen to prominence with this global mentality. You go back to 980 AD, just about a thousand years ago, and we see a character named Vladimir the Great. Here's what we don't realize because we look at a map today and we see Moscow up here and we see Kiev down there in Ukraine and, and, and we see all of that happening today. But in more ancient times, Moscow was actually a suburb of Kiev. Kiev is the original city that they were after. There is a holy war of rush that is taking place in our day and our age right now, where we have this tyrant Vladimir Putin. He's not just on a quest for power, but he really believes that he has a calling of sorts to reunify the land of his fathers and his forefathers. And I'm sorry, but sanctions are not going to to deter him. Sanctions are not going to stop him. You can resist an evil man, but if the righteous say nothing, if the righteous do nothing, then evil men persist. I think we should just stop right now for a moment. We need to pray. We need to pray. If you feel comfortable, will you join hands with the person next to you? You you watching us online, just, just reach your hand out to the screen. We're gonna pray. God, we lift up Ukraine and the people of Ukraine in this ungodly, unrighteous war that has been perpetrated on them against the Rush, the Russia, the king of the north. 
We pray, God, that your will be done, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray and lift up the people of Russia who do not want this war, the people of Russia who are suffering under the hands of this tyrant, this modern-day Herod. We pray against the spirit of death and destruction. We lift up the underground church and those who do not have the liberties like we have today to worship freely in an assembly hall like this, in a place where we can gather for worship. We lift up those in the persecuted church and say, God, our brothers and sisters are in need of a divine intervention. Holy Spirit of God, intervene on their behalf today. And it's in Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. Being a follower of Jesus means that you abandon your right to control outcomes. You abandon your right to control outcomes in your own life, to control outcomes in other people's lives, to control outcomes for the things that you have no power over, control over. And that doesn't mean that you, that you live in a, a willy-nilly haphazard way. You should still do all that you can in righteousness and godliness, but here's the thing. You cannot control someone else's decision. God has given them a free moral will. God has given them a right to choose or to decline. But when we allow this mindset, this missing the mark of trying to control every piece and like a chessboard trying to put all the pieces in the right place, then really we have made ourselves tantamount to God. And we have tried to become like the Almighty. And Jesus said there was a sin of the Pharisees, 11, and then 11 of Herod, trying to control everything. You know, being a follower of Jesus means that sometimes you're going to be mistreated. Sometimes you're going to be wrongly judged. There will be occasions when you are misunderstood, when you are talked bad about, when the other party doesn't get your side of the story. Being a follower of Jesus means that sometimes you will be ridiculed, that sometimes you will do the right thing even though it's not popular because what's popular is not always right and what's right is not always popular. Being a follower of Jesus means that you take up your cross, you deny yourself, and you follow him. Look at verse 27 of Mark 8. It says, Now Jesus and his disciples went out of the towns of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, who do men say that I am? So they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. Then he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. And he began to teach that then that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly. This was not something concealed. It was not a parable. This was something he spoke openly. Understand it, hear it, get it. Then Peter, he's the head of the church, then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Can you imagine rebuking God? Peter took him aside and said, oh, no, Lord, no, that's not going to happen to you. Not on my watch, it's not. Peter, the same guy that will pull out a sword and cuss you out before he chops off your ear, he's the head of the church. He's one of the leader 
of the entire disciple pack took Jesus aside and said, Jesus, let me fix your wrong theology. You've got it wrong. I'm not going to let you go and suffer and die. But when he had turned around, he looked at his disciples. He rebuked Peter saying, get behind me. This is strong. Satan. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of man. These are strong words from Jesus. But it is set off with this question that is an ageless question. It is a question that each and every one of us must come to grips with. We must grapple in our own lives with this sentinel question, who do you say that Jesus is? You can read lots of opinions and blogs on the internet. There are volume after volumes of books written about this wonder-working Galilee, Jesus from Nazareth. You can borrow from doctrines and, and committees and councils of what they say Jesus is, but when it comes right down to it, the age old question and the ageless question for each of us is, who do you say that Jesus is? One of the disciples got it right, but quickly fell in to the sin, the leaven of thinking that he could control the outcomes. C.S. Lewis said it like this, we really don't want a father in heaven. We want a grandfather in heaven because a father loves and plays with the kids, but then corrects them and sends them into a place where they have to take a time out. But a grandfather... A grandfather loves and plays with the kids and then sends them home. We really want a grandfather in heaven. We don't want a father. And that's never been more true than in our churches today. I just spent four days in South Carolina with 11 other pastors. And and, and you could hear the stories and and, and the the, the similar themes that that we're dealing with in our churches from Maine all the way over to Texas. There there are these, these same thread of stories. And that is that in pastoral ministry, sometimes you have to be a father to the fatherless. In pastoral ministry, sometimes it means taking the position of a pastor and saying, no, that's really not the best choice. No, I really don't think that you're called to do that. No, I really would rather not go in that direction. And in our day and age, what we have is a bunch of people in our culture, in our society, who are dying a thousand deaths because we have 10,000 choices. We are spoiled as a culture and as a nation to be able to choose everything and anything that we ever want. And so whether it be the telemarketer, the the person calling us on the phone, or it be the person on the other side of the phone as we call in or the restaurant, we don't ever want to be told no. We want what we want and we want it now. But that's not how real life works, is it? There are times of waiting. There are times of saving. There are times of preparation. There are all of these different seasons. And Peter didn't want to succumb to this fatherly advice of Jesus. He just wanted to do it his way. And sadly, many of our evangelistic modern methods have focused so heavily on someone just getting saved just going to heaven when they die, that what we've done is we've created transactional salvation. Pray a prayer, pray it the right way, and then when you die, you're gonna go to heaven. 
Nothing about discipleship, nothing about taking up your cross, nothing about suffering, nothing about tribulation. Nothing about trial. We don't have to deny ourselves. We get it our way. I'm sorry if I'm the first to tell you, but the broad road leads to destruction. Narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. And and what that means is that if you just want to go along with the crowd and do what everybody else is doing, then you are taking the Pied Piper's path to destruction of your own life. But if you will heed the words of this book, if you will with your ears hear and with your eyes see, with your mind remember, then you will know that sometimes you have to do the hard thing. Sometimes you have to receive the correction in love because the Lord chastens those whom he loves. Listen, if if all that you ever get out of my messages is me patting you on the back and telling you how good you are, then I have failed to do my job. And I'm here to encourage you and I, I want to encourage you and I want to build you up in the faith, but there are also times of correction that comes to us from the word of God. There are times of us saying, God, I really want it this way. And he say, no, it's, you're not ready for that way. And the answer is no. See, when we pray, we usually pray for the go. God has three answers. When we pray, God has go, slow, and no. Did you know that? I don't have Bible on it, but I have experience with it. We usually pray in the affirmative. God, this is Jimmy. I'll take all you can give me. We usually pray in such a way that we want God to say yes, but how about we pray, nevertheless, not my will be done, but thy will be done. That's what Jesus modeled. Thy will be done. If he is Savior and Lord, not just Savior, not just he got me a get out of jail free card, no. If he is Savior and Lord, well, like Shakespeare said, and it was repeated in the Wizard of Oz. Now that's a horse of a different color. Savior means that I don't have to go to that wrath, but Lord means now I have to lay down my life as a sacrifice for him. And sometimes I have to do the uncomfortable thing because it benefits someone else. Lord means that I abandon my claims to be right all the time. Lord means that I do the hard things. I go the extra mile. I turn the other cheek. Lord means that he's in charge of the kingdom, not me. It may seem in the kingdom that one is getting blessed and another is not. And I don't have the ability to think through and to rightly measure who deserves to be blessed and who doesn't. Lord means that he is in charge. In verse 33, he says, get behind me, Satan. And the word Satan here, the Satan, is accuser. Accuser, the wrong mindset, the wrong motives, the bad agenda. Look at this. If Peter could have done it, he would have prevented Jesus from going to the cross. If it were in Peter's power, he would have made sure that Jesus never got hung on that cross. I don't know about you, but I'm glad that Peter failed on his mission. I'm glad that Peter didn't get it his way. 
I'm glad that God's plan was greater than Peter's plan and that Jesus was loving enough to Peter to call him out and to call him what he was acting like, which was an accuser and trying to short circuit the plan of God. Be very, very careful when you try to be an amateur province guiding and superintending somebody else's life, always shielding them from the trouble, always shielding them from the pain. You may be short circuiting the process of God in their life been many a times a, a mother has come to the altar for prayer for, for her, her wayward spouse or her wayward children or her family. And, and, and here's the pray, prayer that I've prayed before for a, a mother who has prayed about their wayward child. I said, Lord, make them miserable. God, make them not even be able to eat or sleep or do anything. She said, whoa, 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 don't pray like that. Don't pray like that. No, that's the very thing they need to get to the rock bottom so they can look up. We always want to pray flowery prayers with Jesus. He rebuked Peter right here. So be very careful they don't short circuit the plan of God. It's almost like one of our elders was just telling us a couple weeks ago about his, his son graduating high school, insisting that he would go on the road with a, a band. He was very bright and intellectual, could get into any college he wanted to get into, and his parents had high hopes for that. But he said, no, Dad, I want, to, I want a road trip. I want to be with this band. I'm going to take a year off of school, and I'm going to go, and I'm going to play music all around the country. And so he did. That's exactly what he did. Kept his mama praying every night and every day. And yet they let him go because he was of age and he could do it anyway. But they trusted him in the hands of God. And, you know, he said at the end of that year that he got a call and his son said on the other line, I'm in California, but what's mom having for dinner tomorrow night? We're done with our road trip and I'm coming home. And mom said, well, you can't be here in two days. He said, we're not even stopping for using the restroom. We're getting gas. We're going to hightail it home. I want to be back home. See, that's what it's like in the father's house. When you have a memory and a knowledge that God, he is good and he His glory and his mercy endures forever. His mercies are new every single day. You want to be back in the Father's house. That's your place of rest. That's your place of promise. Mark 8 and 34 says, And when he had called the people to himself, he said to his disciples, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Look at the word that's repeated here, the word desire. Nobody desires to lose their life. Truly and honestly, nobody desires to lose their life. But you know, in the attempt sometimes of saving something, we end up losing something greater. And here's Jesus' instruction. If you have a desire to come after Jesus then you need to do something, and that is to deny yourself, take up your cross. I don't know what cross you're bearing. We all have different crosses to bear, and follow him. Deny, take up your cross, follow Jesus. Pretty simple, right? That's easy preaching. It's hard living. It's hard living. Why? Because there is still this selfish desire, this flesh in us that wants our way. Verse 36, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the son of man, will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. Jesus said this to a large crowd. 
This was a vast offer of salvation. Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But you have to desire it. And proof of pursuit is your desire. Are you pursuing what it is that you desire? The result of following Jesus is not simply saying a prayer. Prayer is important. You should do that. We would love to pray with you. The result of following Jesus is not simply church attendance. You should attend church. You should have a faith community. You should be involved in a small group. That's not it. The result of following Jesus is having the identity of God stamped on your life. They were first called Christians in Antioch. Why? Because it was a slang term. It was derogatory to say they remind me of Christ. They're little Christians. They're little Christ. They remind me of Christ. If the proof of your life was presented before a grand jury, could you be tried and convicted of reminding someone of Jesus? Has the identity and the approval of God been stamped on your life? There's an outward expression that the church has practiced for 2,000 years that demonstrates that identification with the body of Christ. It's called baptism. Because when we're baptized, it's not like taking a bath. First Peter tells us that baptism is not the, the washing away of the filthiness of the flesh. That's what you do when you take a bath. You are clean when you come out of the water. But baptism is showing a good conscience towards God. And when you're baptized, you go down in that water and you symbolically, like Jesus was entombed those three days, you die to yourself. And when you rise up out of that water, you come to new life again. Baptism has the ancient roots in what they used to do to make a fabric have a color is that they would dye the fabric. They would take all of the, the different chemicals that they needed, the shells, they would crush them, they would, they would make the dye but in order to get the dye onto the fabric, they had to do something to that fabric. What they do, they dipped it in the dye. And so when you are dipped in the water, when you go down, when you're immersed in baptism, what God has permeates and transfers onto you. When you come out to newness of life again, it is your identification with the body of Christ. You are, you are responding to the call of God on your life to say, I want to be identified from here and forevermore with the family of God. That is baptism. The gospel message is the announcement of God's kingdom come on earth. Dallas Willard says it like this, the kingdom of God is the present availability of God's rule to everyone who will participate with it. A kingdom is when someone has direct rule over you. If you wanna be part of the kingdom of God, you can be a citizen of the kingdom of God right here and right now because there is both a present kingdom of God and a future kingdom of God. There is a kingdom of God that is happening. Listen, as, as a Christ follower, you're just a pilgrim passing through this foreign land. You are a citizen of heaven. And when you have been baptized, you are responding to the call of God to say, I am identified with that kingdom. I am part of that. First Peter 3 and 5 says, blessed, uh, blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that does not pass away, reserved for you in heaven. This is a future kingdom 
who are kept by the power of God through faith and salvation to be revealed at the last time. But the present kingdom is in Hebrews 12. It says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. It goes on to say, for our God is a consuming fire. He purifies us from all impurities. May the fire of God so ignite our lives that the world looks upon us and they see us burn bright for Jesus. They see something different about us. So here is my close. Here's how I want to bring this to an end today. If you've made Jesus your savior, I commend you. I commend you for reaching out with faith to say, Jesus, save a sinner like me. But the next question I have for you is, have you declared him as Lord? See, that's different. Savior means you got me out of the trouble. Lord means I will now surrender my faculties, my abilities. I will surrender my entire life to you and I'll do what you ask and you call upon me to do. Heads bowed and no one looking around. This is just between you and God. If you need to make Jesus Savior today, we're gonna pray a prayer. And if you wanna make him Lord, then boldly and bravely, you need to be baptized. The water is prepared. The opportunity is here. For those that are being baptized today, you go ahead and be ready. I'm gonna pray and and, and maybe there's someone that didn't plan on doing this today and you, you wanna make this your day, you can. You can, today can be your day. Pray this prayer after me. Dear God, pray it out loud so that your neighbor can hear it with boldness. Dear God, I come to you today just like I am. I'm a sinner. I need a savior. I repent of my sin. I made Jesus my savior and my Lord. I give you my heart, Jesus. I give you my life and I'll serve you as you show me how. Amen.